This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Do you long to understand the Bible in a deeper way? The ESV Study Bible was created by a diverse team of leading Bible scholars and teachers and features a wide array of study tools, including extensive study notes, topical theology articles, Bible character profiles, and more, making it a valuable resource for serious readers, students, and teachers of God's Word. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible wherever Bibles are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Academic, presenting Colossians and Philemon by G.K. Beale, a must-have commentary for pastors and scholars. Learn more at bakeracademic.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. A church that looks like a country club will definitely appeal to some people. Uh, think of it as an aspirational church, the kind of place people want to join in order to make the right kinds of friends and contacts. But to the outside world, it's not going to look distinct as a church. It's going to look like a country club, and you don't need the resurrection of Jesus to start or sustain a country club. But what about a church for the downwardly mobile? A church for people who can't enhance your resume or boost your bottom line. A church where serving the weak and the poor exposes your own sin and need for the Savior. Now that's a church that grabs the world's attention, and it's the kind of gospel-centered church that the Gospel Coalition exists to support. My guest on today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is Vermont Pierre. He's lead pastor of Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and a TGC council member. He is also the writer and presenter of Gospel Shaped Living, a small group video and book study published by TGC with the Good Book Company. It's based on point three, countercultural community, from TGC's five points of gospel-centered ministry. This might not be the most provocative or controversial section of our theological vision for ministry, but if not, it's close. And we'll see why in this interview with Vermone. Vermone, with that introduction, welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast. Thanks, man. Good to be here. All right, Vermone, I know this is something you strive for, that people would get along inside the church who could never get along outside what does that look like at Roosevelt Community Church? Well, you know, first of all, I mean, it just I can't help but but think of how poor uh, our history is in this for the American church, particularly um, that that the American church's most natural tendency, I would say, has been uh, to organize around affinity groups, especially when it comes to race and ethnicity. So we're just fighting against a lot of historical baggage when it comes to being churches that represent people coming together who might not normally be together. 
Uh, that being said, you know, I think the Bible is uh, not surprisingly <laughs> really good help here uh, for us to be a church. And I'm going to, I'm going to press this even a little bit more for it to be a church full of people who aren't just getting along, um, but mm. they're, they're actually loving one another, like have strong, have actually affection for each other who normally would not even be in the same room with one another. And yet, have bonds of love and peace with one another. So it's not just like we're just sort of putting up with each other. We're actually bonded and united to, to one another. And, and I think that the metaphor the Bible uses that we use a lot at Roosevelt um, is that idea of family, the biblical metaphor of family, how I think that's immensely powerful and significant. And, and using that as sort of a conceptual framework for then some of the practical things that we want to want to do in our own particular church has been really helpful. So you know, I, I think about how we've been made into a family, which is a way of just saying, it's acknowledging the fact that we are different. So I think it's important to say that. Like we we should just acknowledge the fact that there are distinct differences that matter. It's not like we're all the same. And so whether it comes to class, education, it comes to race, ethnicity, there, there's real differences. And we've been made into something that allows us to be united together with one another. Something that doesn't erase those differences, but actually uses those differences to bring us together. A lot of times I, I say it's almost like puzzle pieces. Like the world would have us be have the, the the edges of ourselves be jagged so that we can't form in any connection with one another. We're, we're too, we're, we don't fit together. And yet by the gospel, uh, through what Christ has done, he's rounded us together and made us into puzzle pieces that now can be fitted together and presenting a picture that we cannot present apart from one another. Well, how does it contrast, Ramon, with the those kind of affinity groups in your community? Does it Does it grab people's attention? It might be a leading question, but just genuinely wondering, is it is it distinct in that respect from from your surrounding culture? Oh yeah, it is. I mean, that's that's probably the thing people notice the most about our church is the diversity of the church. Um, it's uh, which, in some ways, speaks to uh, <laughs> to where the culture is at. Sadly, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when you when you come in on a Sunday morning, you you notice different ethnicities. You notice, and part of it is where we're located. I mean, we have people who walk in off the street who are clearly homeless others who are quickly more financially stable and upwardly mobile. Um, and so, you know, Sunday morning becomes a really important sort of representation of that. Uh, but then how we press into that with the different small groups and classes and other things like that, I think is important as well. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's, that's something that that's very visible. So you talked about the biblical metaphor of family. This, this section on countercultural community that you wrote about in gospel shaped living is it's expansive this statement. We're going to cover a lot of ground here, but another area beyond race and ethnicity that you mentioned here where this is really important uh, is sexuality. Um, this, and this statement includes the Gospel Coalition's position on sexuality. What does it mean to care for one another in the church, as the statement talks about, to the point that biblical chastity makes sense? Well, you know, I, I want to just say I like that you use the word biblical chastity. Um, so I think it's a, a, a better way of thinking through this. You know, oftentimes, uh, we, growing up, we talked a lot about abstinence um, when it came to sexuality. So, you know, you can't have sex unless it's with the opposite gender in the context of marriage. And, and of course, you know, strictly speaking, that's true. If you think about it, it sort of creates a haves and have nots. Like, here's a group of people who can have sex and here's a group who, who can't. Uh, chastity allows us to think of this concept as, as really this idea of almost self-control when it comes to our sexuality, which means whether you're married, you're single, same-sex sex attracted, and but having to commit to being celibate, all of us have to practice chastity in, in different ways, self-control. So even married people uh, have to exercise a, a degree of self-control when it comes to sexuality. 
there's sexual practices that are dehumanizing or demeaning that we should not engage in, even though the world would commend them. And so when you sort of put it in this way, biblical chastity, I think what that does is create empathy. It allows, I think, married singles, those who are same-sex attracted, uh, to realize we're sort of all working through how do we exercise self-control when it comes to our sexuality. And I think empathy is hugely important when it comes to this. And, and so I'm thinking particularly those who are same-sex attracted. I don't think a lot of Christians know enough people who, who struggle with that and understand just what that means and, and, and the struggle of what that what, what that means for, for, for people who want to be faithful to the Christian witness, um, but be uh, but be chaste. Uh, and so having empathy, realizing that it's a different way in which they're practicing the same thing you need to practice within your own marriage is, is helpful, even though obviously they have a greater burden in, when it comes to those who are same-sex attracted. And then from that sort of foundation, I think that that allows us to be more diligent in some very practical things, like deliberately praying for those who, who are single or, or who are same-sex attracted, um, being a hospitable, uh, going, and I mentioned being family before, um, that idea that we, we remain in family, that we actually are a family. That means we are relating to one another as family. Uh, I think Wesley Hill and others have, have done some good thinking on this, which is to say we don't press we don't press nearly enough into what it means to be family and to draw people in uh, in ways that would, would help. It doesn't solve everything, right? Um, but uh, if we really were pressing into some of the practices of being family, being hospitable, um, caring for one another, noticing w the different concerns uh, of people, particularly around holidays and things like that. All those things, I think, would would, would create uh, space by which uh, practicing biblical chastity would be would be a lot easier. Yeah, let me just put in a plug here. I'll just speak for myself here. Ed Shaw's book, Same Sex Attraction and the Church: The Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life, a 2015 book. Highly recommended. I think it covers a lot of this ground well and sort of building on what you're, you're sharing with us here, Vermon. Um, let's, uh, let's imagine a church, Vermon, where families are strengthened and valued in countercultural ways, according to Scripture, and also where singles are honored and included. How do we, how do we get there to those kinds of churches? You've already mentioned, of course, the, the family metaphor, pressing into that. I would imagine that's where you start. Yeah. Maybe help us to make a few more of those steps toward that, toward that goal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, this question I almost think very, very specifically, very practically. I mean, I, I, you know, I think a lot, just, you know, a lot of churches, most churches in the United States aren't particularly large. Um, you can literally go through your church directory and be very intentional about the people of your church. Uh, the families and the singles that are represented there. Now, larger churches would have to organize bigger systems by doing this, but I, more and more I've been taken by, like, why, why, what's preventing us from sort of systematically really going through and identifying people and really getting a sense of where they are, where they're located? Um, are they, because that, that would lead to sort of this, the second thing here, uh, sort of that, that intentionality of then helping those families, those singles be connected in what I would say smaller communities. So the reality is even, you know, even a church that's, let's say, 100, 150, it's not particularly large, uh, people can get lost even in a church like that. Uh, it's not just a, a problem for large churches. Uh, and so using uh, sort of those smaller formats that are provided in like small groups, classes, Bible studies, even, even a serving group, like you're, you're part of a worship team, um, those are opportunities that uh, provide, those are really unique opportunities by which you can intentionally engage the families and the singles that are there um, and, and, and make sure they're feeling included, they're known, uh, they're being encouraged to grow in their faith. Uh, and the third thing I thought here too is just 
you know, what happens on Sunday morning is, is, is helpful. So sermon series, uh, so those of you who are preachers, thinking intentionally of examples that you use in your sermons that uh, have in mind families or singles. I think we have to do some intentional work to do that. It's most natural for us as preachers to think of examples from our own sort of uh, social location or uh, wherever our family status is, but to think beyond that, think of uh, the widows, think of the divorced people in your church, and then thinking from ways to, be, to particularly highlight them, to include them as you're uh, making points within the, that's, that, again, this applies particularly to preaching, but then certainly within the worship, Sunday morning worship experience itself, I think there's really important ways in which you can sort of highlight the different families, praying for families. Uh, you know, there's a, here's a practical thing, uh, you know, back to school is happening. Uh, a lot of families are very much engaged in that. There's a lot of ways to, to, to pray for families who are sending their kids back to school and all that that means uh, within the Sunday morning time. Uh, and there's similar things you could do for those who are single as well. Uh, so I think those are just some, some, just some things off the top of my head I think that, that might be helpful. So we're going, I mean, we've already covered some controversial ground. Let's, uh, let's continue <laughs> in this. We know there's a lot of talk about socialism. Among really? young people. Yeah, yeah, you may have heard about that before. It's become it's become popular. And also accusations flying all over the place about Marxism among <laughs> Christians. Um, let's consider what TGC's Theological Vision of Ministry from 2007 says. And I'll just point out here that last year I had tweeted this message from uh, the Gospel Coalition's Twitter account. And, oh my goodness, the response that we got to this was pretty drastic and quite confusing. All right, here's what the statement says. Regarding money, the church's members should engage in radical sharing with one another. End quote. Whoa. <laughs> uh, do you know anybody, Vermon, who actually does this? <laughs> it doesn't happen a lot, unfortunately. I, I wish it happened way more. Um, I, I think that statement accurately reflects uh, what we see in the, in the New Testament. Um, that being said, I, I, I have seen some of it in my own personal life, well, the local church and then sort of the broader church culture of, uh, of Phoenix, uh, Phoenix metro area. So uh, my own story, uh, we were, uh, my wife and I were uh, looking to foster to, to children uh, and then uh, from foster them, uh, from fostering them, then uh, begin the process of beginning to adopt them as well. They were sort of in that that state, and we uh, had, were living in a condo that wasn't state approved. We needed a, a three bedroom. Uh, the condo needed to be three bedroom. It was only two bedroom because it was a sibling group, and the state requires uh, even if if it's opposite sex siblings to be in separate bedrooms. Uh, we had a, a a couple in our small group. Uh, basically loan us their house. Hmm. Uh, they switched houses with us for a couple months wow. so that we could um, more, we can more, uh, we can more quickly begin the fostering process. Uh, and then that gave us a little bit more time to find a, a house that we could live in. Cause that, that was sort of the holdup. We were in this condo, couldn't find a house that, that fit with us. And so they literally, the, the church came out and moved everything. And we, we lived in their house and they lived in our condo for a couple months. I mean, I still, I, I've ne it was amazing. <laughs> Uh, I still can't believe they they, uh, they did that. And, and so that's, I mean, when stuff like that happens, you're just like, yeah, I mean, that, that's what it should be. You know, and my associate pastor, John Talley, he regularly lets people stay in his house for different reasons um, if they need help. Uh, and, and so stuff like that, I've had people in our church lend each other cars. You know, it's just a, that radical sharing, I think, is when you when you see it, you begin to, you get the sense like this is right. This is what should happen. 
So I've been blessed by that in our local church. And, and I've seen that too in the broader church within um, the Phoenix area. There's sort of a, a local network called Surge. And I, I've been amazed by how different churches across churches have helped and supported one another, whether it's you know, one church has a couple that has medical expenses and some other churches come and, and help with that or educational expenses for, for to help maybe someone move out of position that they were uh, previously in. Uh, it does happen. Uh, it doesn't happen nearly enough. Um, but I, I think those examples are encouraging. I mentioned them uh, not to sort of toot our horn, horn but to say like th- it, it can happen. It just takes a, yeah, it takes a vision for that. It takes a, it takes a, a willingness to see the resources and the things that we have as, as not our own, as, as the Lord's and to share them, right? Which is a way of just saying like, yeah, it should be mine, but I'm willing to give it for the benefit of other people. Yeah. Well, the reason I mentioned socialism and Marxism in there is because when I saw the responses from people, they were alleging that we were socialists or Marxist with this statement, which I don't understand because those are coercive terms, political terms. This is entirely voluntary. Yeah. That we're describing right here and also commanded in the Bible and also commended yeah. in the Bible um, and exemplified. So was very confusing, but it, it shows you how difficult it is for us to be able to separate these political conversations from expectations of what should be normative within our local churches when they have really been gripped by the gospel. And when yeah. they understand that all they have and all they are is Christ's. Man, um, you hit on the idol. That's that's what it is. <laughs> we have the idol of, of money, of possessions, uh, and we protect our idols like no one's business. And that's what it is. I mean, it should not be uh, – we, we, we should not be surprised or disruptive for us to say we should share what we have for the benefit of others. That should – how is that a shocking statement? The history of the church is that, right? Uh, I mean, that it's in it's all over the New Testament um, that we should again. Not, it's not coercive because God loves a cheerful giver, right? So cheerful, but giver, right? Paul seems no seems to have no problem uh, asking churches. Really, almost uh, almost telling, look, his Lord made himself poor, uh, was rich, and he made himself poor. You should also give, right? I mean, he has no problem putting that onus on people, right? Why do we have a problem with it? Again, uh, the the church, particularly the American church, uh, we're we're surrounded by consumerism. We're surrounded by the sense that I have certain rights that I need to hold on to with a death grip, right? and this idea of actually more regularly letting go of what we have, so that others might use it and benefit from it. And even if they misuse it, that it's still good that we give for the benefit of others. That, that's a that there's a reason why that's a hard sell. It's an idol that unfortunately. Has, has really wrapped itself around the hearts of, of, of many American Christians. In ways that Jesus told us explicitly that it would. I mean, yeah. that warned us about it. I mean, that's why there are so many warnings, including also from the Apostle Paul, about the love of money. Yeah. Um, so sure. the uh, this is interesting. David Platt was not a council member for TGC back in 2007. I just want to clarify that. Um, But we just mentioned that the church's members should engage in radical sharing with one another. And here the statement goes on to commend, quote, a radically generous commitment of time, money, relationships, and living space to social justice and the needs of the poor, the oppressed, the immigrant, and the economically and physically weak, 
end quote. All right, well, I think, Vermont, we can admit at least that evangelicals in general have not distinguished ourselves this way, at least in reputation. Um, what are some other examples that we can point to for some inspiration? I think sometimes when we can at least visualize it, just like you did in the last answer, you can see people do it. All of a sudden it becomes a little bit more plausible as we see the Spirit work within us to motivate us to be able to carry out these these commands. And I also wonder, what are some ways that your church does this? Yeah, let me speak to that specifically. Sort of two examples that I've seen locally uh, in, the, in the Phoenix area. So our church has been involved in this, and, and as well as a number of other churches. Uh, so one example would be uh, being involved in the foster care system. Uh, and so uh, really, particularly Arizona is, is one of the worst states when it comes to how many kids are in foster care. And we, we and a number of other churches have, have said, like, these, I mean, helping the, the, the child is, is, seems to be a pretty important ethic in Scripture, that we should be engaged in this particular area. And so uh, a lot of churches have been involved in, number one, helping families stay together. So that's important to say. Uh, the most important thing is to see families, um, particularly families who are at risk and have children about to go into foster care or being removed. What can you do to help, uh, let's say it's a single mom, uh, do the classes and maybe find a new place to stay. Maybe they're with an abusive boyfriend or something like that. Um, a lot of times with support and resources, uh, uh, a family can stay together. The child can come back into, into, uh, to their biological parents, uh, which, uh, again, the church is uniquely able to provide sort of the community support that, uh, some, some, uh, some parents, uh, need. And so helping families stay together is the number one thing. Number two, then fostering. In some cases, yeah, there's, there's a situation here that's that's bad, and so fostering needs to happen for for a while. So uh, I, I've been really blessed to see how many churches have really stepped up to the plate, and, and the families have gone through the foster parenting classes, gone in their their houses, set up. Uh, and uh, my my wife and I have done uh, fostered uh, a number of different times. Uh, we fostered uh, some teenagers as well. Uh, and so, it, it just, so it's been awesome to see churches really step into, it's particularly fostering some of those uh, cases that are harder to place. Uh, and then, uh, and then obviously, lastly, adopting children. Uh, sadly, sometimes that leads, uh, severance happens. And so I'm seeing a number of different churches begin to, a uh, number of different families within churches uh, adopt children out of the foster care system. And so that's just one, one example. Uh, another quick example I, I'm going to mention here is, uh, and this is more recent, uh, our family's been involved with this and a number of other families and other churches as well, uh, hosting asylum seekers. Um, and I know this is sort of something in the news and people sort of, frankly, I don't think a lot of people know exactly what's going on, but let me just sort of clarify, you know, the people who come to the border um, aren't illegal. They, they basically surrender themselves to the government, to, to ICE. And what the government has done is ask churches for help with this. And so, um, they literally drop off uh, the asylum seekers at different uh, churches in, in the in the valley, uh, because uh, as many of us know, they're they're uh, the systems overtaxed. Uh, keeping families in the detention center, I would say, is, is horribly wrong uh, in the ways that we've been doing it. Uh, and so, uh, a number of churches have stepped up to uh, basically host the asylum seekers for maybe a night or two until they then go on to uh, stay with family members that they already have in the United States. So, what that involves is, is picking them up giving them a place to stay, uh, helping them, uh, maybe feeding them, uh, and then uh, helping them get to, let's say, a Greyhound or to the airport uh, to uh, uh, to where they'll stay with family and await their, their trial date. And so that's been, uh, you know, that's been very cool to see happen. And I think it's a way 
that that churches can can respond that yeah frankly uh there's a lot of different rhetoric about some of these kind of things and yet uh, i mean i i don't know how you ignore um i think some of the biblical mandate to, to really help those who who are at risk, who are on the margins, uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, and so anyway, those are just, those are two different, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I could preach a mini sermon about that one, but uh, those are just two examples that I've really been blessed by that I've seen locally uh, that I think hopefully reflects the statement. Yeah, one thing I get a little confused by is that there are lots of decent arguments about what the government should do or what they shouldn't do, what kind of how all these things go together. But then when it comes down to the tangible need in front of you, I yeah. don't really know why there's that much debate. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, that's yeah. a totally different thing. You're, you're, not, you're not talking there, this is the government's official policy that they must maintain for all times and all places. You're just saying, okay, there's a clear need. Yeah. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know why those two get intermingled yeah. so clearly, but I, I find that fairly consistently from people. That's part of the theme, I guess, that we're discovering here. It's very diff difficult for evangelicals ethically, it seems, to be able to distinguish between what ought to characterize us as individual Christians and what ought to characterize our churches, and how we then take those further steps into our responsibility in a, in a democratic republic to be able to enact those policies uh, through voting um, and holding our, our political leaders accountable. Um, this is, uh, again, right here, we're, we're talking about the church here in this, this next question. And remember, I've mentioned 2007 a few times here. This Theological Vision for Ministry was written 12 years ago. And maybe, Ramon, in this um, question more than any other, it seems to speak to our situations today even more urgently than it did uh, 12 years ago. Here's what it says about power and gospel-centered ministry. Quote, It is visibly committed to power-sharing, and relationship building across races, classes, and generations that are alienated outside the body of Christ, end quote. So not only race, but also class and generation in there is that same dynamic of, of people who get along inside the church and, like you said, love one another inside the church who don't get along outside the church. But speak specifically to church leaders, members, pastors, uh, who are listening to this podcast, where this is definitely not the case. Uh, power is concentrated among a certain race or class or generation, but they want to press into this statement from our Theological Vision for Ministry. Uh, how, do they, how do they get there? Yeah. Um, you know, those, let me sort of press into those, those, those two things, power sharing and relationship building, right? So power sharing means... You need to give real opportunities to minorities, to people of less economic needs, to, to the next generation. Uh, so what does that mean, real opportunities? So you need to give legit uh, key positions in the church. Emphasis on the word legit, you know, not just sort of, here, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll let you lead a, this little small group uh, that has, uh, with no say into how the small group ministry is, is being led. No, you need to really put people in, in, in key positions and give them opportunities to, to influence and to, to lead. Um, I, you know, frankly, FaceTime up front on a Sunday morning. For most churches, Sunday morning really is a significant point. Uh, and so if you want to uh, let uh, other races, other classes, other generations know, hey, we want you here, letting them be seen and, and let them be seen leading the church in, in their worship service is, is, is really important. Um, an issue that sometimes comes up with this is 
you know, we don't have people who are trained or, or ready. Uh, and I, by no means I'm advocating like a quota system. You just got to throw people up there. But if you don't have people who you, you think uh, who could move into positions or, or lead in certain ways uh, that allow them to, again, but just as you literally sharing power, right? So you're putting them in power positions that you previously owned and you're letting them step into those. If you don't have people who are trained enough to handle that well, then train them. You need a multi-year plan to train them. You may say, we can't do it now, but three years from now, we will be able to do it because we're going to take these next three years. We're going to invest the money and the time and the resources to train people uh, who are of different races or of different social classes, uh, the younger generation, so that three years from now, they can step into these positions of power. We're going to prepare them for that. For that. We're going to w- open it up once they are ready. Uh, and I think that that's just a way to, to eventually get there if you think you're not there now. So power sharing is important. And then relationship building. Uh, that means reaching out to people across race, class, age. Uh, there's this amazing concept in the Bible called hospitality that people will find useful in this. Uh, and by, by hospitality, I mean like regular interactions with multiple people across race, class, and age. So not just, you know, I'm going to invite someone over like once once a year, but I, I'm going to regularly find opportunities to be in the same space with other people, eating meals together, doing things together, being around one another Um those type of uh, you build relationships in shared experiences. And so if you need to have multiple shared experiences, you, you think of your friendships that you have when you, especially longtime friends that you've had, uh, when you get together with them, you almost inevitably begin thinking about the things that happened back when you were in seminary for me or in college, uh, things that happened when you were growing up uh, on a little league field. Those are shared experiences. If you want to build relationships, you need to have shared experiences with people who are different from you. So you need to press into into those things. Again, it's not about having to put up with people, but how do you form love with, with other people? Um, being in those same spaces, intentionally being in the same spaces and doing things with one another, uh, I think is a, is a healthy way and a, and a biblical way to do that. So my last question here in this gauntlet um, relates to one of the more attention-grabbing statements in all of our foundation documents and certainly within our theological vision for ministry. It says this, Vermont quote, each church should seek to reflect the diversity of its local geographical community, both in the congregation at large and in its leadership, end quote. All right, so a lot of times when we talk about that, we get pushback from people because on two fronts. One is somebody who's white who says, I come from an all-white place. What is that supposed to mean? Well, I mean, it says what it means here the local geographic diversity you you can't manufacture that if it doesn't exist though we should say there are not a ton of places left in this country where there aren't kinds of diversity um including in rural areas like where i come from in in south dakota um i can say that this is and i should say the other pushback we get also also usually comes from white people um and they'll say all right, so are you saying that to black people and to Asians as well? Um, are they doing Are they doing the same thing? I think that's kind of an ahistorical critique to not understand how a lot of those churches formed in the first place. But anyway, let's let's just set that aside for a second. I'll just say in Birmingham, Alabama, with a church that does not live into this, um, much to my discouragement. I'm not blaming anybody specifically. It's just. It's proven Vermont to be much harder than yeah. I than I thought it would be. Um, how, how do we start? How do we work toward living out 
this priority, just admitting that it's it's hard, it's complicated, and one of the ways I found it's very complicated is because whites especially expect, okay, the, the problem is on our end, so we just need to make ourselves hospitable to minorities, and then minorities will want to come to our church when they realize that they can. That's not the situation that we're in, in part because we're surrounded by a lot of minority-led, minority, almost exclusive churches where there isn't a lot of interest. And I've even wondered, Ramon, this may need to go the reverse route. Um, This may need to mean whites are going to go into um, mostly minority-led churches. Then all of a sudden you start to run into some theological problems anyway, or at least disagreements, I should say, there. It's complicated, but I don't want to just throw up my hands and say it's complicated. I want to make progress. Help Help me think that through. Well, you know, that last point, I, I do think it is, it is it is interesting how much this is framed and I'll just, I'll just say it, a white centric way. So right. sort of white or just say, how do we get the black people to come to our church? Like, why don't we think about it in reverse direction? And I just would say there's, there is a ton of biblically faithful black led churches in this country. Yeah. There's a lot out there. Right. Um, and so I think for some people saying, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to agree, et cetera. I, no, there, there's churches out there. Question is, are you willing to <laughs> to be the minority, right? In in some of these churches, right? Um, and to submit into some degree. I, I think that's. Let me just say, I, I'm glad you brought that up, but I don't think that that is said enough in terms of it. It it, it can go the other direction and probably should. Um, as far as what you're you're talking about, I mean, Colin, bro, I mean, you're you're in a tough spot, right? So, if it's a big church, it's like 95% white. It is unlikely to become diverse. I, I hate right. to say it. Uh, I used to back when I just graduated from seminary, I was way more idealistic about this. Uh, but having done, you know, now almost you know, 15 plus years of multi-ethnic ministry, like it's, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to change a, a church that's sort of been in that trajectory. That being said, I mean, I, I think there's ways in which your church could be more racially sensitive and knowledgeable, should probably be involved in church planning. I think just generally any church, even if it's 95% white in an area that's 95% white, it's still an American church which means it's placed in a country with very unique and particular history. We, you shouldn't act like we can, you can ignore all that. Like that, that matters, right? Um, if you're gonna be in this particular country, like we, we have a unique and particular history when it comes to race. Uh, and, and that means I think a certain amount of awareness and responsibility towards that history and how it continues to influence us. Um, saying all that though, I do think, you know, I wanna sort of make it all doom and gloom here. I do think there's some things churches like yours can do to be at least a little bit more diverse. Um, and so this this relates even connects to the previous question. I think intentionally reaching out to and equipping minorities in your church, um, especially those who you might I'd say seem to be leaders. Uh, for any minorities to join a, a church that's 94% white, they're, they're basically pioneers. It's like the people who are you know going out west uh, and you know they're, they're, they're the first establishing the first homestead. And that's difficult. Right? There's no one else there, right? I think you need to recognize the the huge jump someone has to make to join a, a, a church that, let's say, is all one particular ethnicity. And so uh, really actually talking to them specifically, taking them out to lunch, saying, look, I realize you're a pioneer. Um, will you, are you willing to be that pioneer? Not everyone's willing to, but some are if they're just feel they're intentionally noticed and supported. And so be be willing to do a little bit more for those people who um, who are coming in who represent maybe people that you want more of within your church and helping them be encouraged because it's going to be hard for them to be, let's say the one of only like 
three or four black families in a thousand person church, for example, um, because they're pioneers and because they're pioneers, they can be the bridges to attract other minorities. Uh, that first group of people who come and stay make it way easier for others to, to come and stay. Others who w are totally unwilling to be the pioneers, but they're willing to be the second, third, fourth sort of round of people who come through. Uh, and so that, that, that can be, that can be a way in which that happens. Uh, you know, again, giving legit leadership positions to legitimate minorities, emphasis on the word legitimate, right? So these are, these are real positions of leadership, uh, again, the power sharing aspect, but then to legit people too, there's some minorities who, um, who aren't actually going to be good in drawing other minorities. In. And so giving them positions of leadership doesn't really do anything. It's just sort of becomes a token, right? Um, others who are actually not very good about, about not very good about being in those type of spaces. You need someone who, you need minorities who, who can be cross-cultural, right? So who are in those kind of leadership positions. So finding those people and then giving them uh, legitimate positions, I think is important. The last thing I would mention is just, I mean, you, you got to pay attention to and care about the issues of minorities in your area. Uh, and so, um, when there's things happening, uh, particularly in our day and age, in the news and other things like that, you gotta you gotta show that you care about it, that you notice it, um, and that is not just uh, it doesn't matter. Um, the the election of of Trump was a significant thing for a lot of minorities. Um, there's things you can do, small group discussions, panels, other things like that, that show hey, we care. We're not ignoring your your, your concerns, your needs. We're giving you a voice to air them. Um, all those things can, can help. And, but let me just say, most churches don't want to become diverse. I, I hate to say it, but most churches, um, if they've been around for a while, um, if they want to become diverse, they want to be what I would say superficially diverse. So we want people to come, but not really <laughs> say anything beyond uh, sort of submitting to what the, the, the current um, culture of that church is. If you want to sort of really engage people and, and people who, who are going to be different and, and see some things differently, um, that there's, there's almost always a cost to that. Um, there's always a cost. I think it's a worthwhile cost, but it's important to say that um, because you know the history of our country. If you look at sort of the history of multi-ethnic churches, it, it's very minimal. We've spent most of our history not being separated from one another because of racism and other things like that, right? Um, and so we uh, we we don't really have a cultural memory of doing multi-ethnic church, diverse churches, uh, and so that is going to take some work. It's going to take some cost. Um, but I think it, it it very much accurately reflects a, a first-century church, right, of, of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, who are together? Right? They didn't. They didn't do a church for in Rome for one church for the upperly mobile Jewish people, another church for the upperly mobile uh, Romans. Right? There's one church together. Um, I, I think that's a that's a model that's uh, that's worth us recapturing. That really stood out to me right there, Vermon. And I I've read I think a lot of the same things and seen some of the same things that you've had to be able to make that statement right there. Most churches don't want to be diverse. Or they do want to be superficially diverse, but not beyond that. And I think it's important to put all of this within the Gospel Coalition's context of why we came about in the first place. And one of them is because of a lack of theological vision informed by the Gospel, informed by Scripture itself, as opposed to more or less indigenized to American models of church growth. And the dominant model of American church growth, which is the unspoken or spoken assumed default position for evangelical churches, that you must be growing um, in those numeric ways, the unspoken or the, the, the methodology for doing that is through affinity groups, yeah. um, sometimes explicitly the homogeneous unit principle, um, but often just like 
attracts like in in basic ways. So it's going to be if your goal is a large church because in that in your mind there you are then fulfilling the great commission um then the easiest way to do that in almost any context is to is like following like or to to yeah. tap into these affinity groups and so i don't think works. yeah it works i mean we have we have decade after decade after decade of evidence for moan that it is a really good way to build a big church and then when you think about the last two generations of evangelical church planting, in many cases, a lot of it is go to the places where people are moving in the suburbs um, or the exurbs because they, they need new churches out there. Well, then you know, well, how are those places forming in the first place? Well, in many places, especially the South, but certainly not exclusively the South. I could go to any number of northern cities and find the same thing. Um, the dynamic is going to be these are places that were fleeing ethnic diversity and integration. So the churches then settled and indigenized into that homogeneous context there. And I don't think that process has, has diminished. And then I'll add one other thing and get your response to this, but um, Emerson and Smith and Divided by Faith, a number of other people talk about this. Um, we should distinguish here, Vermone, between what we've been talking about, about people getting along and loving one another, with there then being peace, as people expect their churches to be peaceful places. Um, because that's there seems to be a lot of stigma around the quote-unquote agitator in the church. So if you walk into your church and you bring this, and you might even say, hey, we're a gospel coalition church, but we don't, you know, we're on the church, we're on the directory and everything. But you know what, guys, we don't look like this. And we're not even seeming to try to look like this. What's the deal? The typical response, Ramon, is going to be, you're upsetting the peace yeah. around here. Um, you're not getting along. You're not, you're not loving people. And if we do this, we're going to lose a ton of people there there's there are reasons why we don't make more progress yeah. on these topics and it's because we are so much more enculturated um within our evangelical churches than we want to admit but if we have the spirit we have the scriptures and we even have a little bit of help from this theological vision for ministry to encourage us along the way i think it's possible <laughs> sorry long long discussion there but I don't know what what do you what do you make of that, Ramon? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we we and I were talking a little bit earlier about uh, you know what are we motivated by? Are we are we motivated by a particular vision, uh, and it's a vision that I, that's the vision of the gospel, of a gospel centered church, a gospel shaped church. That's what compels us. If other things begin to cloud that vision, uh, we begin to get off track. If 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 we're really only concerned about um, keeping people right or "Quote unquote," keeping the peace, um, then we we will get off track because sometimes if we're not, yeah, again, if we're, if we're a community that's not shaped by the gospel, um, that means we've drawn people, we've we've formed something that is that is not reflective of what gospel community should be. To change that will require disruption. It will require losing people, and that's okay. 
you know, I've, <laughs> I've thought about this. You know, Jesus arguably was a pretty bad church planner, right? <laughs> yeah. he, he started a small church, it grew, and then he lost everyone, right? Uh, so are we, are we going to knock Jesus on that? Well, no. I mean, he had a vision to die on the cross for our sins, and not everyone was compelled by that, right? I mean, that, that, that does happen. Um, and it's okay. I mean, I just want to tell everyone out there, it's okay. It's okay to lose people for the sake of the gospel. Right? It's okay to disrupt people for the sake of the gospel. It's okay to be prophetic, right? To speak truth that's going to pierce people's hearts. Uh, and the reality is uh, the aroma of Christ, uh, for some, it's a, it's a sweet aroma. For others, it's it's a smell of death, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, as much as possible, and I think that's all you should be asking. Is this of Jesus? Does this reflect the message and person of Jesus? Does this, does this reflect the biblical story, uh, the, the fall, the, the creation, the fall, redemption, restoration? Is this reflective of these things? Uh, to the degree in which it is, I think that that we have a roadmap to follow. And then we should always be calling and compelling people towards that. And sometimes um, disruption or even people uh, falling, you know, falling away for a little bit is actually an indication that we are doing the right thing. Not always. We shouldn't be arrogant or, or pompous about that. Um, but we, it's not, we have like written words in our hands. Right? We, have, uh, we have church history we can also look to as well. But we have, uh, we have things that we look to. We have Jesus himself that can help us determine, okay, are we communicating things in the right way? Are we, are we just going off on our own thing? Because, or are we just you know, naturally... Uh, wanting to be disruptive or no, we're actually trying to be faithful to what the Lord has given us in his church. Um, if we follow that, I think then we, we can know we're on solid ground and, and, and God, God will honor that. Uh, God honors a lot of different things, not just success. Yeah. You start to understand why Jesus had no place to rest his head. The son of man had no place to, you know, to stay and why Paul said that he did not take money from these yeah. churches because there's an inherent difficulty when we're having to teach hard truth and live it out ourselves yeah. um, by the power of the spirit but to teach hard truth and to model hard things for people and among people and for people who are paying for yeah. our livelihood and who are supporting our families. That's just a difficult thing that yeah. church leaders have to face. We want to be liked. You yeah. Know, it's, 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 there's a, yeah, you're, 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 you've been supported for a while. You're used to a certain standard of living. You want, you, you like, I mean, especially for your church leader, you're up front. You want people to like you. It's hard. It's hard to fight against that. Yeah, very hard. Well, my guest on today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast has been Vermon Pierre, lead pastor of Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, a TGC council member. And for more of this, and even to lead your church through this, some of that disruption perhaps, um, pick up his his study, Gospel-Shaped Living, a video and book study published by TGC with The Good Book Company. Thank you, Vermon. Thank you, Colin. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.